Magandang araw, podmates. Howie Severino muli na nagpapaalala na nakakatalino ang mahabang attention span. May kasama na naman akong dakilang Pilipino, isang batang journalist na reporter para sa isa sa pinakamainfluensyang news organization sa mundo, si Regine Cabato, ang Philippine correspondent ng Washington Post, ang dyaryong tiyak na binabasa ng mga pangulo ng Amerika. Magandang araw, Regine, at uh, buenos dias. I know you're a Chabacano speaker from Zamboanga City. <laughs> buenos dias, Sir Howie. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. Regine, ang latest na major reportorial project mo para sa Washington Post ay tungkol sa so-called digital sweatshop sa Pilipinas na nasa industriya ng artificial intelligence o AI ang pinag-uusapan ng marami na bagong game changer sa mundo ng technology. Ngayon lang na may lumabas na ganitong angulo sa, sa AI, ano? Paano pa nag-exploit ng workers ang, ang AI industry at uh, paano mo natuklasan itong istoryang ito? Thanks ulit, sir, uh, for having me on the show. Um, napakamalaking surprise talaga for us sa Washington Post nung nalaman namin to, no? Um, yung unang lead na para sa kwentong to, nanggaling pa sa boss namin, sa boss ko, si Rebecca Tan, yung bureau chief ng Southeast Asia. So, kami yung dalawang um, talagang nagre-report sa region na to. Um, madalas naman, matunog ngayon, di ba, ang AI. Um, it's a buzzword nowadays, parang future ng economy natin, etc. It will change the face of work. Pero actually, nare-report na rin sa ibang bahagi ng mundo, like in Africa, Venezuela, na may ganito palang trabaho, ang tinatawag nating data annotators, or yung workers behind AI, yung tumutulong sa pag-train ng AI. Pero itong report namin, parang ito siguro yung pinakaunang expose talaga um, na may ganito palang trabaho sa Pilipinas. At medyo exploitative nga siya in nature because um, sa base sa nakuha namin or na-interview namin mga tao, um, karamihan no, ng, ng mga workers, at least for this particular um, billion dollar AI company, um, hindi silang nababayaran ng gusto. Tsaka, um on time as well. So, may mga potential labor violations, ano, um, not just for uh, U.S. standards, but even for local Philippine law standards. No? So, um, karamihan po kasi hindi natin, like, we think that AI just comes out of nowhere. Like, that it's just, you know, like a advanced technology, nasa future na tayo and everything. But actually, it is a very, um, shall we say, clerical uh, work with you trace the supply chain of it. Kasi yung knowledge ng AI, hindi naman yung nagagaling sa kahit saan-saan lang eh. Tao pa rin ang nag-e-encode niyan. Um, at yun pa yung naging dahilan ng, ng story namin na um, malaking bagay siya na hindi natin alam na a lot of the brains pala behind AI are also Filipino. And this company that's supposedly exploiting these uh, Filipino uh, workers in in these so-called digital sweatshops. No, this, this is the U.S. company, but uh, it has uh, like af- affiliates dito sa Pilipinas. Yes, it has um one affiliate dito sa Pilipinas. So, medyo complicated yung company structure niya, sir. How we know? Um, ang tawag sa client-facing company, which is worth some seven billion dollars at malaking company ito sa Silicon Valley. It's called Scale AI. Um, and it's run by 
26, 27-year-old billionaire who uh, is kind of like a Silicon Valley darling. Ang dami nilang um, high-profile clients, including the U.S. government, um, including Meta. Um, so, ang ginagawa nila, no, binabenta nila sa ganitong mga tech giants, sa ganitong giant tech companies, ang mga data sets that will train the AI that these tech companies develop. Um, so, yung data sets, parang doon... Yun yung, for example, footage, um, images, etc. Um, that teaches uh, the AI uh, what is what, what different objects are, ganyan. Yung training data ng AI. Um, yun yung binabenta nila. Yung Scale AI has a company under it or a platform under it called Remote Tasks. So yun yung, actually, baka matunog nga siya sa ibang listeners ninyo, Sir Howie, because there was a time that it was very popular sa, sa Pilipinas. Um, at Parang ka-competensya nito yung Upwork, if people have heard of that. But, uh, so many online freelancers no, um, get their work on sites like that. So, ang mga Filipino workers, nasa-source sila through this platform, through remote tasks. And then, the data sets are sold by Scale AI. At may local affiliate pa sila, yung Smart Ecosystems Philippines po. And um, you call them uh, in your report, no? Taskers, uh, itong mga... The mga si, sinabi mong uh, kind of cler- digital clerical workers, no? They're taskers who annotate data. So, um, I guess part of their task is, you know, to to enable these um, AI language models to distinguish nga between uh, a tree and a pedestrian and the images, and uh, you know, provide all this all this data that has to have some human intervention so that you know the machines can process these uh, more or less uh, accurately, you know. So the bigger question here is, you know, we've had troll farms, we've had BPOs. Is this much worse than, you know, other aspects of the digital industry? I mean, how would you compare this particular industry na nag-employ ng, you know, maraming Pilipino online uh, versus, you know, pre- previous um uh, stages of this uh, technology age, no? When you know we you, we've also had a lot of uh, Filipinos working remotely uh, for foreign clients. Parang it seems to be sir, no, that every other year may ganitong bagong front new frontier um, of the digital economy in the Philippines. So a few years ago, like you mentioned, it was BPOs, and then a little bit after that it was content moderation you know yung mga it was a, it was um, a kind of bpo work where people uh filter the the worst of the internet the social media linilinis nila yung mga gore and um violent um content that we see online and then now it's uh, ai naman parang every year because i think of the nature of the philippines na una where a lot of us are young um, a lot of us are digitally savvy sa yung workforce natin. And not to mention because we were colonized by the U.S., maraming mga English-speaking, so communicative ang workforce natin. At gustong-gusto yan, ng, um, gusto-gusto yan sa global market, no? So parang yun yung reasons kung bakit this seems to keep happening to, to, to Filipinos in one way or another, no? Is this particularly worse? I'm not sure, but it seems to be um, a trend. Kaya it's very important for us to... Um, report on it like today it's AI tomorrow it might be something else yesterday it was content moderators the day before that BBOs diba? so it's very important to bring this uh, these stories out to light and it's also very important for government officials to understand no, 
yung importance ng digital economy and the landscape of the digital economy. Kasi yung laws natin, obviously, have not been able to catch up to um, these kinds of new innovations sa ating digital economy. Also very, you know, to, like, like I'm very curious then to find out how um, people will be responding to our article in terms of a policy, siguro. Um, and hopefully it brings more you know, to awareness. But siguro just to clarify, Sir Howie, although this particular example of this one company we found is um, exploitative and it was uh, is potentially exploitative no, because also of the Oxford study that rated this company as uh, um, uh, as low in terms of uh, yung labor fairness. Um, there are other companies that do data annotation na okay naman sila magbayad, at least according to the workers. Um, there are other companies naman that try to strive for some sort of ethical standards. Kaso, because nga, if this is an underground economy, people are not aware that these other companies exist. Parang hindi pang map out no in the public eye yung companies that are have the best practices, yung standard the dapat na wages para sa ganitong trabaho. I'm not sure how it was when BPOs first came into the scene, no? Maybe it was also like that at first and then people um started finding out more about it at standardized in some way, but um I think that's why it's so important to talk about it para people will learn that oh there are other companies that exist. Um this is too low of a price to be paying for this kind of work. Huh? Yung, yung story mo nga had uh, a number of uh, anecdotal horror stories of uh, these workers not being paid or they're being paid very low or they're just being terminated. No? Na parang wala masyadong uh, dahilan. And uh, some of them really hate their jobs but they, they're still working for the same company because wala nga masyadong uh, options. You know, your story ends without much hope actually. No? Kasi... Uh, it and it just seems like the exploitation will continue because, parang uh, uh, the government officials you had talked to did you know didn't seem to um, have much response. They you know they in fact they said we don't know how to regulate this. Uh, parang kalat kalat mga workers. You know we don't even know how many they are. We don't know where they are, uh, etc. The company that's supposed to be that's employing all these people are overseas. Um, so, parang there's, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of these big questions that that are hanging over, you know, this whole industry. Yeah, it's really sad, no? And that's why also it's important for DICT officials, labor officials, to kind of be ahead of the curve because um, this will keep happening. Eh? We're in a new age of social media, of digital economy, etc. So, parang with all of these new sorts of platforms, there are bound to be some new ways also, new loopholes to to the law pag hindi siyang na-update. So, I really do hope something could, could be done about it. Kweto ka lang din siguro, Sir Howie, no? Parang, since you mentioned the anecdotes, one of the things that really struck me when we were speaking to a lot of the workers um, who were working in this job was that alam nila na linalowball sila. Um, so there were a few workers, for example, that um, were just doing it part-time. So parang hindi sila masyadong invested. Pero there were also workers na aware sila that even though they don't know who exactly the clients are, they know that it has the company has ties to Silicon Valley. They know the company has ties to big um, tech companies. At sinasabi nila na alam ko na linolobol kami. Kaming mga Pinoy linolobol. Um, th- because they view us like this, they view us as cheap labor, 
ganyan. So nakakalungkot, no? Uh, and hopefully, the, uh, there will hopefully be more awareness about it so that um, uh, policy can be changed. Yeah, you know, there's this there's this large debate now uh, uh, between, uh, you know, b- benefits versus uh, harm and dangers than AI. Of course, many of us uh, use ChatGPT and, uh, you know, to help us in our work and, and research and even thinking, no? Uh, so that's w- one pretty clear benefit. No? And, but in, in all of the discussion about harm, it usually they dwell on the yung mga bias ng algorithms, yung, the potential for spreading uh, disinformation, etc. But ngayon lang siguro nabasa na marami yung tungkol dito sa the digital uh, sweatshops. No? But I want to ask you, since you're also um, active in the journalism sector as a vice president of the Foreign Correspondents uh, Association of the Philippines, uh, ano yung posibleng impact naman sa journalism workers? No? I, uh, you know, journalism is also a labor sector. You know, we're, we're workers um, and we do mind work. And there's been a lot of talk about how artificial intelligence is going to make some aspects of our industry um, obsolete as far as human labor is concerned or AI is going to displace uh, journalists uh, in a number of aspects of our profession. What's your thinking on this? That is the fear, Sir Howie. So I'm actually quite curious also how the folks at GMA view it. I think at this point in time, though, um, there still is a little bit more um, premium on the human touch when it comes to journalism because we can't still um, fully trust AI. I think when it comes to uh, proper fact-checking, yung rigor ng, ano, yung rigor ng investigative process, no? I mean, AI is a tool. Eh. It's a tool. But I think for a job like journalism, it's a helpful tool, but it can't um, replace the people who run the machine. Um, at least not yet at this point in time. No? So um, I think it's very important still to, maybe for us for, for um, us journalists, to start to maybe play around with these tools, start to maybe use them so we don't get left behind that know what they're like, know how to report on them. Honestly, no unang report namin tong AI story, hindi talaga ako masyadong techie eh. even though I follow um uh, I follow like social media stories and such. Um I was very intimidated by it at first. Akala ko na parang napakataas ng ng AI as a topic, but then when I realized like, when you pulled back the curtain, it's not just an AI story, it's not just a tech story, but it's also a labor story and a human rights story. Um that's when I really felt na okay, this is why it's very important for journalists to understand this so that we can explain it to people. Um, And also so that if the phenomenon catches up to us in our industry, we can also understand it ourselves. We can't allow ourselves as journalists to go obsolete. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about another recent uh, story that you worked on for the Washington Post. It was a blockbuster. Uh, You know, and in the opposite of Futuristic, no? AI, medyo futuristic pa yung uh, storya, no? But this one uh, reaches back over a hundred years in history, uh, itong Searching for Maura. Just to capsule, summarize it for our listeners who haven't uh, read it, no? It's a, it, si, si Maura was this uh, Filipina 
who was taken from her uh, village in the Cordillera Mountains. Uh, she was one of those Filipinos displayed at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. This was at a time, of course, when we were still a new U.S. colony and the U.S. Uh, colonial government, I guess, wanted to show off uh, the people from its from from the new colony and, you know, how exotic we were and how interesting maybe we our customs and traditions were or their customs and traditions were uh, in, in the Cordillera. Now, anyway, Mauro was a was a teenager. She died no, of, of pneumonia. And I guess it was part of this uh, big uh, scientific project at that time. You know, the brain was separated from the rest of the body and then taken to the Smithsonian Institute, which is a kind of a museum complex in Washington, D.C. with research facilities. And um, there, her brain was one of those studied as part of this research project to see whether you know, the brains of our race was different from the brains of other races, and I guess in particular white races, no? Anyway, you and your colleagues at the Washington Post broke this story uh, about Maura. Um, although I, I know that some Filipino-Americans had been had been writing about this issue for, for a while, no? Pero uh, it was interesting how you guys uh, did it at the, at the Post because it, it came out as an illustrated story, no? It wasn't all text. Much of it was actually... Uh, illustration, no? uh, kind of almost like a graphic novel, but it was nonfiction. You know? But congratulations on this story. I know you worked on this with with uh, uh, other reporters at the Washington Post. What else can you add about this story and why is it important? Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Sir Howie. I'm really glad that pumatok talaga yung kwento. It seems not just in your book, but also with the readership. Um, one of the reasons why it's so important is that it is the Washington Post's first Filipino language story. Um, and when the story was, you know, while we were working on it, and it took a team of up to 90 people uh, of supporting the project to, to run it. But that's the whole project. Na, and Mora's story is just one component. Um, and there were around 14 Filipinos also on the team, uh, including Phil Ams. Um, I'm the reporter who was based here. Although we do have... Um, the illustrator, who's also based in the Philippines, who is Pinoy also. And one other translator who is also here. And then we have our Phil Am colleagues in the U.S. So that's the, roughly what, what the team was like. And our project head, si Casey Shaper, she really pushed na talagang dapat ma-release to in Filipino so that it will be more accessible to Filipinos everywhere, really, um, para mabasa siya by older generations and also by people at home because this is a project that um although it has been reported on to some degree before diba? um we've heard like at least history enthusiasts have already heard of uh, the 1904 world fair but this was the first time that we're really hearing about what happened to the remains of a lot of people who went to the world fair like we don't know na um, uh, may mga labi pa pala na naiwan um, at nagamit pa for um, scientific research which was essentially parang white supremacist in nature, diba? So, um, uh, that aspect was very important for us Filipinos on the team na we really wanted to reclaim um, the story from the Filipino perspective. Um, and Nicole Donka was one of the lead investigators. Silang dalawa ni Claire Healy, no? Nicole Donka is also Pinoy. Um, and she's based there in the U.S. And she also, like, you know, roped all the rest of us in. So I'm really grateful to have been part of this project. 
it's also our first the no sir howie our first investigative comic yeah it's amazing no <laughs> investig imagine that that phrase no investigative comic no so talagang it shows how journalism is also uh, being transformed no but nagkaroon ng impact itong itong storyang ito no kasi the smithsonian responded uh, almost right away right um how did your team feel about the reaction was it was it enough of a response by the smithsonian i know that not everyone is happy about their response well, for us, the man of the post, I think you you might be referring to one of the activists we covered, whose story um, and whose work prompted also this project. Project Jana Anunoeva Langos. Um, she released a statement uh, saying that she did not find the Smithsonian response to be enough. Um, so definitely, I think that there are all these uh, characters at play, no? and that, but as journalists, um, what we're really here to do is really just tell the story. Um, and then see how people and the public also react to it. I think what's important for us is how the community uh, feels about it. Um, I know that in Suyok, because Jessica Soho went um, and covered, no, and she she interviewed the community there, um, and they're pleased that to hear the news that there will be um, uh, the the remains are being glad to be shipped back na. Um, and they plan to set up a uh, set up a memorial also. So. Um, I think hopefully that, that this could give at least some people some closure, you know. Siguro some because it happened more than a hundred years ago, we might think that it's uh, um, you know an old issue. It's but I think as long as there are communities for whom the subjects of these stories matter, it, it's really still important to to hear them, you no. Know? Hopefully we'll we'll see how things pan out. We're still monitoring because the National Museum said na um, they're coordinating along with the DFA. Um, so, inaabangan pa po namin yung um, paano yung magiging process ng pag-repatriate ng mga labi ng Pinoy. And it's interesting because it uh, coincided uh, with the publication this year of a of a popular young adult novel in, in the UK about about the same event, no? It was fictional, of course. I'm sure you've heard of Wild Song, the the novel by Candy Gourlay, yes. a Filipina or uh, uh, British uh, author uh, based in London. Um, uh, but it it uh, has a fictional account, uh, but based on a lot of research uh, about you know the St. Louis uh, World's Fair in 1904 and how you know the people were trafficked there and their experience and how some of them uh, died. So. Uh, th- so this this issue is is very much in in the in the public conversation, no? So, uh, from two different uh, directions, no? from fiction, and then you guys are doing investigative comics, and now I'm ko lang, no? So of course, um, this is about uh about the Philippines. It's about Philippine history and a in a in a emotional uh issue between the U.S. and and the Philippines. But it's not the only story about. The Philippines uh, that that has come out in the Washington Post and will not be the last, and uh, you're, that's why you're here. Why right? you're covering you're covering the Philippines for this very important newspaper. So for the same reason, will your stories now be translated into Filipino language so that Filipinos can also have access to future Philippine stories, or uh, is this is this an exception? Well, this is uh, like a first, so it's very experimental in nature, as you you can tell. Um, uh, so we're hearing out all the feedback. 
I think standard, ano pa rin, standard procedure would still be definitely to stick to English, um, unless there are big, big investigations maybe in the future. Um, not necessarily with the Post in particular, but other Western publications when they have reported major stories out of the Philippines. Sometimes they do um, get a translator. Alam ko, like, the New York Times before, I think, had a drug war story that they translated to Filipino as well. And there was also another viral story some years back of uh, The Atlantic, um, written by Alex Tizon about... Um, the family about slave. Yung family, yaya nila, yeah, my family slave. Yung yaya nila who was legally brought to... Um, the U.S. and who was not paid apparently for all these years. Um, that was also translated into Filipino. So, um, it seems to be that in uh, Western publications so far, the um the translation treatment is given to really big stories. No, I think it's important to let these Western publications also know that there's a demand for these kinds of stories. But for sure, I think that's also why local media is there then to help us. Be able to cascade these stories as well, um, where the foreign publications can't reach. <laughs> well, I have access to the Washington Post because I'm a paying subscriber, uh, so that's <laughs> one barrier, <laughs> not to to access. No, I'm saying this in the context of what somebody told me about, you know, the huge uh, uh, disadvantage of quality journalism versus disinformation or these websites that spread falsehood or hate, etc. It's all free. No, you don't have to pay for it. It's all free versus quality journalism. Of course, it's expensive to produce quality journalism, but, uh, you know, uh, charging people subscription piece also becomes a barrier for people to know the truth. No, so I, I know that you you were just uh, overseas where you had a Reuters fellowship, no? And you studied uh, disinformation. Uh, I mean, share with us, uh, no, I... Uh, Give us some good news about it. I mean, is there hope <laughs> out of this uh, dystopia of, <laughs> of fake news, disinformation, oh and how it's gosh. affecting our politics and, and how people view journalism in general? I mean, give us reason for optimism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> but yes, sir, I was in, I was in um, Oxford for a while and uh, I worked on a project about how Filipino reporters and journalists can better tackle this information um, or report about this information and respond to it. Um, so hopefully that paper will be published within the year. Um, nasa editing phase siya ngayon. Well, there's good news and there's bad news, sir. And I think you might know this already, that Filipinos generally are aware of this information as a problem. Um, and I think there was that SWS survey um, earlier this year or was it late last year? Uh to say that Filipinos are aware and it's a problem. But um, the bad news or the flip side to that is that some Filipinos think that journalists are to blame for, for this problem. Um, I think definitely one of the challenges for us, um, well, the finance, like you mentioned, this is one, no? because it's expensive to fund good journalism and have to pay for the labor of these journalists. Whereas um, in this information demand, it's a whole cottage industry which has a never-ending well of money and funds that are untaxed, undeclared in campaign finance, right? So the money is not quite with us. But I think that there's a challenge on the part of 
um, a journalist, no, that we have to start rethinking our business models, models, I think, and we have to start getting, I guess, more creative. Um, kaya rin, it's been interesting for me um, to be a part of these recent investigations. Now we have our investigative comic on Maura, um, the AI story as well. Um, because I also get to see a little bit of the PR that goes into the marketing of these stories to make sure that they're read. So in the Philippine context, I think that maybe we should also be actively planning to um, market our investigations also as journalists. I mean, not to say that journalists themselves should do it, but the newsroom should be doing uh, the marketing also of these investigatives. Lalo na alam na natin ngayon na um, hindi na masyadong binabasa yung mga investigatives, sir, diba? Like, not like in the early 2000s, you know, where um, an investigative story could decide, could, could um, rattle the popularity of a president. It's not like that anymore, diba? Parang a lot of stuff don't stick anymore. So I think it's, one of the things that I learned was that it's very important to um, produce um, a lot of content regarding uh, the deep reporting that we do on TikTok, on YouTube, ibat ibang formats, short form, long form, at hindi lang text, so that it can reach as many people as possible. And hopefully, not just in one language, then um, we should also be producing this stuff in various languages. Because that's how this information works, then. Eh. Parang is now targeted towards a lot of um, communities. Micro-targeted na siya. Um, hindi katulad ng 2016, ba? Now it's a, we have all these micro-influencers parroting this information. So hopefully journalists can also build a similar type of network um, so that we can make sure that our stories get out there and are read and hopefully also appreciated. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously... One of the reasons why we we enter this profession is we you know we want to have some kind of uh, impact on a public conversation, uh, if not public policy, you know. And uh, uh, you know most most Filipino journalists work for Philippine media, and uh, yeah, as 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 you mentioned uh, in a previous era, Philippine media was taken a lot more seriously. <laughs> Uh, it was much more influential. Um, uh, leaders, political leaders, would respond uh, right away. They would even, um, even promise to reform, or they would even say sorry uh, because of uh, expose exposés or investigations yeah. that come out in in Philippine media. Now, uh, more often than not, political leaders will just ignore uh, what what you know the negative uh, news about them that comes out in Philippine media, mainstream media, because, you know, they feel that, you know, we've lost influence and they're able to have, you know, big social media operations that can counter any, you know, negative uh, information that comes out in, in the mainstream media. No, So that's our situation here in the Philippines. But, you know, you're you're in the Philippines, but you have a different situation. No, So uh, you work for Was the Washington Post, um, which is, I guess, one of the top three or four most influential publications in the United States or do you feel that because you work for the Washington Post you still have influence uh you know the US Congress will read you uh you're probably one of the few sources of US political leaders or even the US embassy in Manila uh or credible sources about the Philippines for these people and you know these people influence Philippine politics diba so in a roundabout way 
you can exert a lot of influence on Philippine politics simply because there's a big presumption that U.S. political leaders and political establishment in America will read your reporting. First, I've got to say, it's a huge privilege for me to work here. I really love my job, and I think it's great that Filipinos are also well represented in a paper like uh, the Washington Post. This would not have been the case, Sir Howie, I think, like 20 years ago. And for sure, the impact of journalism overall on uh, the public awareness, it's dwindling not just in uh, the Philippines, but everywhere around the world, the trust in news is, is kind of going down. But that being said, like since... You did mention that the Washington Post is one of those publications that um, is safely up up there, quote unquote. No, thankfully because of the the legacy also that the paper has built um, for itself over the decades. It is a huge privilege for for me to work here, and I really hope that I'm, you know, stepping up to the plate, um, and that our investigations are useful and will be helpful for. Uh, people who are observing the Philippines. In the day-to-day, though, because I do live here in the Philippines, I don't always feel every day that we have like an impact. I still feel like every other regular Filipino um, and every other regular Filipino journalist that sometimes you feel like you're shouting into the void and then it doesn't necessarily make a difference. But every now and then, there might be that one story that people will um, give a shout-out to, that people will... Um, give credit to. There have been a few stories like that over the years, and sometimes it's just you know in the form of a reader email. Uh, people who want to, for example, one story that we did um, was about a Jamaican pilot who was doing airlifts for for medical evacuees during the pandemic, and then a lot of people reached out to want to help him. So may mga ganun paring ano no, may mga ganun paring connections at least that our stories make, and sometimes. That's really what I enjoy as a journalist, like knowing, like you said, that hopefully these these stories make a difference. But also, I guess maturing in the profession is also coming to an understanding that not every story will stick. Hopefully, though, uh, I think the watchers in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world will, will find informative stuff about our report- reportage here. You've been working at the Washington Post uh, since 2018. So you you covered uh, the the Duterte administration. You you did reporting on the drug war. I know you have spoken about uh, being trolled, um, receiving you know uh, a lot of hate for your reportage. So how did it um, make you feel <laughs> about uh, your? choice to become a journalist because you know you're you're still pretty young no are you graduated in what 2016 uh from ateneo yes no? uh, yeah just a couple of years out of college you, you're kind of in this vortex let's put it that way no you know reporting for this very influential newspaper on this very controversial uh, uh administration in the philippines no so i'm just how did you take that as a young journalist you know recently out of college doing this ma- major reportage for the Washington Post and then, you know, getting all of this pushback from all of the fans of uh, former President Duterte? It's definitely, Zerahawi, like a baptism by fire, you know, na out of college, 
And when we were in college, you know, like we were, I was a student journalist at, at the Ateneo. We were that kind of generation that we grew up reading the big investigative stories of the, the 2000s. Um, as cases, no, like, yung, um, you know, cor- we grew up to corruption investigative cases, like actually making a difference in local politics. Um, and then suddenly we graduated into this uh, um, new administration, which was suddenly like a, a new norm. Marang institutions were like being questioned and basically the the strengths of these institutions also were being tested and for a lot of my batchmates when we and na, na journalists din around people my age diba yung pinakaunang ano assignment sa mga young reporters yung police beat tapos ipapasabak sa drug war na ag- um so it was really a baptism by fire like when i was in my first two years with the local media i mostly covered from desk um, although we did have a few parang field work, no? And then when I moved to the post, one of the very first stories that I did was to trace back um, a drug war case, which made the front page of the Washington Post. And that was one of the first instances that I was really met with uh, something of a harassment campaign. And uh, it was hard, like I have to say. Pero it was also clear to me even then that the... People who were behind this campaign, um, that it was manufactured, that this was not necessarily an organic, ano no, parang organic hate. Parang alam mo na sketchy siya because people would message from sketchy looking accounts. People would message at odd times of the night, de ba? Parang and this was a trend that I'd seen like in quite a number of the harassment campaigns that I got to experience, especially when I was covering that in the pandemic later on and then the the elections. But Sir Howie, I also don't doubt that there are for sure people who are real also who have sent me hate mail and stuff. Um like it's also because the this in the information atmosphere that we're in is just so polluted already. Um and I guess that there are some people who out there who really think that it's okay to to message people things like that to message people threats to um be completely um like mean and uh, no, on online so i don't know sir howie but i don't know how to how we we should go about it really but i think that all of us like not just journalists no but but everyone we all have um, a bit of a responsibility to reclaim our shared humanity so that sana hindi naman magiging ganito ang norm natin forever. <laughs> yeah. But that experience did not make you want to quit. Kasi you're still fairly young and you could actually shift careers and do something else that will kind of, you know, where you can don't have to deal with that harassment and and even danger. Diba? Yeah, that that's true. But Here's the thing, Sir Howie. I, I've always wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can picture myself doing anything else. Well, honestly, now, maybe I could now. Nowadays, I'm a little older and I realize that, okay, maybe my skill set is a little more transposable than I thought it initially was. But the thing is, even until now, I still like the work of journalism. Um, but also, I don't begrudge our colleagues no, na umaalis because... 
let's face it, it's not a, um, it's not also like the dream job that we were once sold when we were still students. <laughs> like, um, there's a lot of harassment. There's a, and in a way that was not present a decade ago, adiba. Right? Like, it's always been something of a dangerous job in the Philippines, but then suddenly, like, it's also very invasive um, because of social media. I'm not sure, Sir Howie. Like, honestly, the, 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 the stress is, uh, um, it, it gets bad, I will admit. Like, I have uh, um, had bad days because of the harassment campaigns that I've experienced. But I think what's one of the things that also keeps me in the profession apart from the feeling that like I actually like the work is also the community that we have. I quite like the people we work with in our industry, actually. It's an honor for me to to work alongside a lot of great Filipino journalists. And parang hindi nawawala sa akin yung idea that itong privilege na makapag-report tungkol sa Pilipinas, it was, it did not come from anywhere. It was inherited from journalists who came before me who pushed for um, our industry to have the freedoms that it has. So it's very important to me to be able to tell stories that will try to keep that space of freedom for us in the industry, even if it's constantly dwindling. So as long as I can, hindi ko na siyang romanticize or how I gotta say, because in my early 20s, maybe, or siguro when I was a college student, parang like, you know, I'm gung-ho, excitable about everything. But and now I don't, romanticize it it's a job like any other job but so far i can still stomach it and it's not too bad <laughs> well as an older journalist that's uh, really heartwarming to hear that uh, you know someone someone like you and at your age you know still wants to uh, persist because I, you know i i do remember that when i entered a journalism uh, around your age uh, you know back in the 80s it was it was still considered a noble profession and and uh, nobody hated you, even if you wrote critical uh, stories, diba? I mean, some people would, but uh, in general, the average person uh, had a high respect uh, for for you and for, for what you did. And it's it's just it's just changed changed a lot, no. But you mentioned earlier that um, you can't imagine yourself being anything but a journalist. But you know, you're you're a published poet, you know. I don't I know that's not not a profession. Not your profession, no. But I I recall reading uh, one of your poems, you know, the the happiness indexed, uh, which was not a happy poem. Is there a connection between between your mood there and your being a journalist? I mean, I guess uh, I I guess it you know it would be understandable uh, for you to have that tone and and be experiencing uh, harassment at the same time because of your job as a journalist. Actually, Sir Howie, now that you bring it up, maybe you're right. It's not entirely true. Yung sinabiko earlier that I can't imagine doing anything else because when I was younger, when I was a kid, um, I wanted to become a writer in general. Parang not necessarily a journalist. Um, pero nagkataon lang na um, in the Philippine context, I guess it would be journalism is easier to sell, or parang that's what would give you a day job if you're a if you're a writer, parang poetry naman can't give you, can't put food on the table. So I joined the school paper and then, but I, I, I've always been fond of creative writing, um, to be honest. So um, I still try to practice it here and there a little bit. I think my poetry and my um, journalism complement each other a bit. So there were some stuff that 
um, don't make the editorial cut, which uh, stay with me in the form of images, ideas. Tapos pinaglalaroan ko siya in the form of, of poetry. I guess yung Happiness Index, this is um, one poem that was published sa, sa Taladtod. Um, and it was basically about, ano yung parang happy economies and stuff. But I feel like Filipinos are, like my branding tayo as a happy people. But deep inside, like we're not very happy. <laughs> that was the, the idea that, that I wanted to play with there. Because, you know, like look at our traffic, look at our yung climate crisis dito sa atin. Ganyan. Parang... You know, we just slap on a smile and then push through, but that doesn't mean that we're actually happy. <laughs> so uh, it's very hard to talk about these things, um, I guess, in the form of like news reports, I'm boring them. But if you play around with imagery, I think poetry is a is another way to talk about it that hopefully also um, tickles the minds of whoever reads it. Yeah, you're also a Carlos Palanca winner. That was for. For poetry back in 2019, I had um, I had a suite of poems that was mostly about Mindanao and growing up in Mindanao and the 2013 Zamboanga siege, which happened when I was a college student. So it was mostly in a style that um, that was a little reportorial in its voice, actually. So don't parang naglalaro yung persona ng journalist and poet and yeah. Um, some some poems are probably up online if so people want to read them. Okay. On that happy poetic note, I'll let you go now, Regine. No, thank you. Thank you for uh, for sharing uh, your uh, observations and insights today. And thank you, especially for your dedication to our profession and to coverage of the Philippines. Regine Cabato, Philippine correspondent for The Washington Post, published poet and Palanca Award winner. Mabuhay ka. Thank you so much, Sarawi. Mabuhay ka rin po. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thanks for listening, Podmates. Download this episode so you can listen to it anytime, anywhere. Stay safe, Podmates. The views expressed by guests of the Howie Severino Podcast do not represent the podcast or GMA Integrated News.